And as they go, I will invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. If you're looking in the pew Bible in front of you, you ought to find it on page 323. 2 Samuel chapter 1. A phrase that Rebecca and I say pretty routinely in our house is, what were you saying? Um, You probably know what I mean when I say that. Uh, Somebody's telling a story about something that happened that day, and at the same time there are two wild and crazy boys running around, hollering, doing wrestling moves on the living room floor, requesting a snack, those kind of things. And so uh, the story gets interrupted, and in order to make sense of it going forward, you have to take a step back and recall what has been said. And we have that same need this morning. We spent last year 26 weeks in 1 Samuel, and we took uh, a break for um, Romans 8 and then Advent to just kind of give us a chance to clear our palate. And this morning we're jumping back into 2 Samuel. We're we're not, however, beginning a new story. This is not a a totally different story. This is a continuation of the same story. It picks up right where 1 Samuel left off. The problem is it's been over four months. I looked, the last time we were in 1 Samuel was August 26th. So it's been a while since we've been in this story, and we really need to take a step back and get reacquainted with the conversation that's already going on. In fact, sometimes when you get interrupted and the person says, what were you saying? You say, I don't, I don't quite remember. And as I was diving myself into, first, uh, into Second Samuel, I thought, boy, I need to go back and be refreshed. And so if I preach some of these sermons and I need a refresher, then I, I suspect you do too. And so as we begin 2 Samuel 1 this morning, I'm going to remind you of some things that have happened already to try to catch us all up. But I want to start, before we even read, I want to start by reintroducing you to three main human characters. Just kind of introduction to these three human characters because we're going to hear about them in this passage that we read today. The first uh, human character that I want to remind you of is Saul. Now Saul was the first king of Israel, and God accomplished some victories through him, but Saul failed in the most important way in his character. He, he consistently looked to his own interests and showed little concern for obeying God's word. And as a result, God judged Saul first by removing his word from him. The prophets were driven away from him. Saul had a, a great number of priests killed because he thought they were disloyal to him. And God uh, raised up another man to be king in Saul's place. The next human character is Saul's son, Jonathan. From the outside looking in, Jonathan looked like the most natural successor to Saul. He was everything that Saul was not. He listened to God's word. He acted courageously on behalf of God's people. But Jonathan was not the man of God's choosing. And perhaps the greatest sign of Jonathan's character is the fact that he humbly submitted himself to God's will. He never once sought the crown for himself because he knew that the kingdom did not belong to him. It belonged to the Lord. In fact, Jonathan even helped to preserve the life of the man who would take his place as heir to the kingdom. And that brings us to the third character, who is David. David was a shepherd from the small town of Bethlehem. And after Saul's repeated failures, God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint David as the new king. 
following that private anointing, David gained public support when, beginning with his victory over the Philistine Goliath, he began, he began to have uh, victories on behalf of God's people. But because of his success and popularity, Saul grew increasingly jealous of him. In fact, people would sometimes sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten, tens of thousands. And so the last third of 1 Samuel tells how Saul repeatedly tried to kill David. Over and over, God preserved his life. And then at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul and Jonathan die. So 1 Samuel ends the way it began. Israel has no king, or at least that's the way it appeared. But God has raised up for his people a shepherd from Bethlehem. And in the providence of God, um, David was not at that battle where Israel was defeated. And 2 Samuel begins with David receiving news of what happened at the end of 1 Samuel. So let's read together in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for your word, but we, uh, we want to confess to you that we need your help this morning to understand this and to see how it tells us of your character and how it applies to us. So we pray by your spirit that you would help us today to have open eyes to see and open ears to hear what you would have to say to us through your word today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this whole scene takes place in... Ziklag. And if that town does not sound familiar to you, I would not blame you. The setting gives us another opportunity to kind of glance back at what has happened before. How did we get here? How did David get here? What I want to do is I want to walk you through the set of events that has led David to be here in Ziklag. It has the hand of God 
written all over it. So this first section we're going to call the setting. And I'm going to walk you through this set of events. The first event is that David fled to the Philistines. So this was about a year and a half before this event took place. David, when it became clear that Saul would not stop until he killed David, David decided that he had no other choice but to go to the Philistines. And the author does not endorse David's decision, but it speaks to the viciousness of Saul that David would take his chances among the Philistines rather than stay in Israel. You, you, you recall that um, the, the giant that David killed, Goliath, was a Philistine. And uh, so David was well known among the Philistines as one who was a valiant warrior. And so it was a great risk to go to the Philistines. And yet uh, it was, he thought, his only option in order to live. The second event is that he sojourned in Ziklag, the city where he is uh, here in, in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. Uh, David went to Achish, the king of Gath, one of these Philistine cities. And um, Achish said, well, why don't you go out to Ziklag? Ziklag was kind of this outpost town. And uh, when I was a kid in middle school, we used to watch those uh, Schoolhouse Rock videos. And there was a song in Schoolhouse Rock called Elbow Room. You know, elbow room, everybody needs a little elbow room. And that's kind of what's going on when David goes out to Ziklag. Listen... Um, if you're the king of Gath and David killed Goliath from Gath, you might, you might not want him in your town where every day people are going to be reminded of him. So, David, why don't you and your men go out to Ziklag? You, you can have some freedom out there. You can kind of live your life as you want to, and we won't bother each other. So that's the second event. Now, the third event is David faced an impossible decision because all that time that he's living out in Ziklag, he's going out and he's raiding these different peoples in order to provide for his men. He had 600 men plus all their families, so thousands of people living in Ziklag, thousands of Israelites. And, uh, but all the while, he's telling the Philistines that he was raiding Israelite towns. And so the Philistines think that David has gone totally cuckoo that he's totally turned on the Israelites and that he's loyal to the Philistines. And so when it, when it comes time for the Philistines to go to battle against the Israelites, David's bluff gets called. Now he has two choices. Either he turns against the Philistines, in which case that's a death sentence given the circumstances, or he stays with the Philistines and he fights against the Israelites, in which case he would disqualify himself from ever being Israel's king. So David has a choice between dying or disqualifying himself from ever being Israel's king. And that leads to the fourth event, and that is that some of the Philistines rejected David. So some of the Philistines were perfectly fine having David fight on their side, but not all of them were comfortable. And you can understand why they might be uncomfortable with that. They said... We can't trust this fellow. He's going to turn on us in the midst of battle. He's going to use this as an opportunity to regain favor with Saul. So here we are. We're going to have this 600 um, Israelite man regiment in the middle of our army. And we're going to get out there in the middle of battle. And they're going to suddenly turn on us and split us wide open. And so they send David and his men back to Ziklag. They say, go home. And of course, in the providence of God, this rejection preserves David from sinning because he doesn't have to go and fight Israelites. And it also preserves him from death because he doesn't have to say, he doesn't have to go AWOL. He, he goes home uh, 
by his orders from his Philistine commanders. And then that leads to the fifth event, which is that David struck down the Amalekites. So David and his men, they go to the battlefield, they get turned around and sent back to Ziklag, and when they get back home, they find that the Amalekites had raided. The Amalekites were these desert nomadic uh, raiders. They would go in, and as they did in Ziklag, they burned everything in the town. They took everyone captive, and so David and his men set out to recover what was lost. And the author summarizes how thoroughly they succeeded. He says, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. While David and his men were striking down the Amalekites, Saul and his men were being struck down by the Philistines. And that's where 2 Samuel 1 picks up. Notice verse 1. After the death of Saul, that is at the hand of the Philistines, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. So that's, that. hopefully now we're all kind of up to speed as to how did we get here. David has no idea what happened. He knows that he's been all fighting the Amalekites, but he has no idea what has happened to the Israelites or to Saul or Jonathan or any of those things. So here comes a messenger to break the news. So the next section I'm going to call bad news, and that's verses 2 through 10. Now, look at how the narrator introduces this messenger to us in verse 2. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp. We don't know his name. We don't know what he looked like. We don't know what nationality he is yet. A man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Now, we later learn that this man was himself an Amalekite. So David had just come back from striking down Amalekites. This guy is an Amalekite. But he tells David in verse 13 that he is the son of a sojourner, which is to say this is a man who is not an Israelite, but he has been living in the promised land. He's been living among Israelites. That may explain, A, why this man is still alive to come and tell David this news, and also why he had the sense to think, okay, I should probably go tell David that Saul and Jonathan are dead and that the people of Israel have been struck down. But we need to take a closer look at what the Amalekite tells David. I want you to look again with me at verse 6, and we're just going to read back through Everything that the, this man tells David about what happened, because he, he begins by telling him it did not go well, the people have died. David asks him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? You know, what's your proof? And he tells him in verse 6 and following, look at verse 6. And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, if you're not familiar with what happened at the end of 1 Samuel or 
if you have forgotten what happened at the end of 1 Samuel, and I wouldn't blame you if you have, this story may seem totally plausible to you. Here's the basic gist of the Amalekites' message. He happened upon Saul when Saul was severely wounded in battle. Saul asked him to take his life, which he did, since he knew that Saul was not going to survive anyway. And this was an act of mercy performed at Saul's own request. After the Amalekite killed Saul, he took the crown and armlet. These were royal insignia. These are ways that he could prove to David that Saul was indeed dead. And he brought them to David. So according to the Amalekites telling, he is a hero. I'm a hero. I, I showed up at just the right time and I acted mercifully towards Saul and I acted courageously because I came and brought these things to you. There's a problem. If you are familiar with what happened at the end of 1 Samuel, and if you're not, I'm about to remind you, then you have a few questions right now because there are some serious discrepancies between what the narrator told us in 1 Samuel 31 and what this Amalekite tells David in 2 Samuel 1. So what did the narrator tell us happened at the Battle of Gilboa? Just glance back a page or two to 1 Samuel 31 and let's read it for ourselves. So look with me back at 1 Samuel 31 verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. So according to the narrator, there's no Amalekite who showed up who Saul asked to take his life. Instead, Saul asked his armor bearer to take his life. Unlike the Amalekite in his version of the story who complied with Saul out of mercy, the armor bearer declined out of fear. It says that his armor bearer would not for he feared greatly. And so then Saul took his own life. So in case you haven't figured out what I'm getting at here. In chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, the Amalekite is lying to David. He's not telling him the truth. It's not difficult to imagine why he would lie, what his motivation is. He's thinking, okay, David is clearly an up-and-coming guy. He's on the ascent. Remember, he killed Goliath. He's had all these victories. So when Saul dies... And Jonathan dies. Everybody knew that Jonathan would have been a better king than Saul, but they're both dead. So I'm going to go to David, and I'm going to sort of weasel my way into his impending administration. I'm going to get myself a nice, posh job for the, the new king. But how does David respond? The last section is David's response. The narrator does not tell us whether David believed him or not. Ironically, it doesn't matter because two facts are clear. The first fact is that Saul and Jonathan are dead. And David responds to that with grief. In fact, as you're reading the story, um, if you've just come from 1 Samuel 31... By the time you get to chapter 1, verse 10, you know that the Amalekite is lying to David. 
and you're waiting to see how David will respond. But the narrator kind of leaves us hanging, and he leaves the Amalekite hanging. Because he, he interrupts that bit of the story to tell us in verses 11 and 12 how David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening. And so as I'm reading 2 Samuel 1, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, 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 but, but what's going to happen to the Amalekite? Guess what? The Amalekite's thinking the same thing. He's standing there, presumably, watching David and his men um, mourn and fast and weep all day, and he's wondering, when are they going to quit all this grieving so that I can get my reward, so that I can start getting my stipend and all this kind of stuff? But his reward is not quite what he expected because the second fact that is clear is that the Amalekite claimed to kill Saul. Now, he, he did not actually do that, but it's true that he did claim to do it. And David responds to that fact with justice. He has the man executed. He says in verse, says in verse 15, David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. Now, this Amalekite dies for a lie. But it was not a coerced lie. It's not like David took him in his tent and interrogated him and beat him up and tortured him all day and kind of coerced this story out of him. The man shows up and just openly tells David, this is what happened. And David makes it clear to him that the guilt falls on no one other than the Amalekite himself. In fact, as I listen to verse 16, it sounds to me like David doesn't really believe him. But he's, he's, he's giving him justice based on what he's claimed to do. Verse 16, And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Notice he doesn't say, Your blood be on your head because you killed the Lord's anointed. He says, Your blood be on your own head because you said, I've killed the Lord's anointed. I want us to just pause and consider how remarkable and unexpected for us and for the Amalekite, this response is. The man who has been pursuing David's death for years is now dead. Saul is dead. This clears the way for David to ascend to the throne of Israel. David knows that he's going to be king because Samuel came and anointed him and said, you're going to be king. So we would expect David to respond to this news with relief and gratitude. That's probably what the Amalekite was anticipating. He was probably expecting David to show his gratitude by giving him money and a, a fancy job in his new administration. Instead, David responds in grief and justice. Why? Why does he respond that way? Because like Jonathan, David does not see Israel as his kingdom to take. He sees it as the Lord's kingdom to give. The narrator has taken great pains to show us how thoroughly David entrusted the kingdom to God. How thoroughly David entrusted himself to God's will. Twice before, David has had an opportunity to take Saul's life. He has had an opportunity to do what this Amalekite says that he did. Both times, David's friends suggested to him that God had given his enemy into his hand. Once David and his men were hiding in a cave from Saul, and Saul came in there to use the bathroom. And they're in there whispering, The Lord has given your enemy into your hand. Go ahead, David. Carry out God's will. The second time, David and a man named Abishai sneak into, David, into Saul's camp, 
And they find Saul sleeping, and his spear struck in, stuck in the ground right next to his head. And Abishai looks at David and says, Boy, God's just lined up the stars, hasn't he? There's his head. There's the spear. It's easy peasy. Let's take care of this thing. And, and both times, David says, No, no, no. His friends are saying, This is obviously God's will. Otherwise, it wouldn't be happening. But just because you have an opportunity to do something does not make it right. And both times David responds by saying, The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Say what you will about Saul, but he was still, to his dying day, he was the Lord's anointed one. And David knew that one way or another Saul was going to die eventually. And that it was God's will for him to become king after Saul died. But David was not going to take matters into his own hands. And he was not going to reward someone for sinfully taking matters into their own hands or even for claiming to do so. So you can imagine this Amalekite, if David had said to him, listen, uh, I know that it's God's will for me to be king. And the Amalekite might say, well, yeah, and all I did was just give God's will a little nudge. David is essentially saying, that was not your place. It's not your place to give God's will a sinful nudge, nor is it my place. Instead, David has always been content to wait for God to fulfill His promises in His own timing. But I want to be careful because there's so much we could say about David and so much we could learn about him and his waiting. There's a lot for us to learn from him, but he's not the hero of this story we kind of sometimes tend to take, um, as one commentator said, a People magazine approach to the Bible where we're just constantly looking for these profiles of people that we should admire. And the story is never about David. It's never about Saul. It's always about God. In fact, David himself, before too long, is going to have his own massive failure. And so I want us to close this morning by asking, okay, how can we apply this to our lives? What is something we can learn here, not just about David, but about God? What I want to do is I want to give you one overarching big idea, and then we'll draw out two conclusions from it. So here's the big idea. Every sin will one day be exposed. What happened to this Amalekite is going to happen to you one day, and to me and to everyone else who has ever lived. Every sin will one day be exposed. It may or may not be exposed in this lifetime, but you can be certain that it will be exposed on the last day, if not before then. Psalm 90 verse 8 says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Jesus said in Luke 8 that nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Luke 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So you can deceive others, you can conceal your sin, you can even deceive yourself about the sinfulness of your sin. But one thing that is absolutely clear is that you can never, ever, ever deceive God. He knows every sin and every sin will one day be exposed. So that's the big idea here. What happened to this Amalekite is going to happen to you one day and to me. What are some conclusions we can draw from that? Two conclusions I want to draw out. First, because every sin will be exposed, therefore we should confess our sin to God. We should confess our sin to God. 
After his biggest failure, David would write in Psalm 51, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You delight in truth in the inward being. That truth in the inward being is what set David apart from Saul. Because when Saul failed, he tried to conceal his sin and downplay it. David owned up to his sin. So we have a choice before us today. Either we can choose willingly to let the light of the gospel shine on our sin and reveal it now in a saving way. So every, every sin will one day be exposed. So you have a choice. You can allow them to be exposed now in a saving way. Or you can choose to conceal them, or at least to attempt to conceal them today, until they are exposed on the day of judgment. The Apostle John gives some important instruction and exhortation in 1 John 1. He says, If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, if we say we have fellowship with God while we're deceiving others or deceiving ourselves about our sin, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, which does not mean... If we're perfect, it means that we're honest about our sin, that we confess it. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Listen, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So because every sin will one day be exposed, John says, don't deceive yourself by saying, I have no sin. Because all you're doing is you're like a, a cancer patient who is saying to the doctor, I don't have cancer. Well, as long as you think you don't have cancer, that doctor can't do anything to help you. But if you'll admit it, there may be something he can do. And so... Every sin is one day going to be exposed. Because that's true, don't deceive yourself by concealing your sin. Instead, as John says, confess your sins to God. And He is faithful and just to both forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. The second conclusion that we can draw out is, because every sin will one day be exposed, therefore we should walk in the fear of the Lord. We should walk in the fear of the Lord. I want you to look again at verse 14. And notice the question that David asks of this Amalekite. Verse 14, David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put out, put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? I, I was really struck by that question. Not the first time I read it or the second or third time, but probably the fourth or fifth time that one just... Jumped off the page. How is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now, don't get me wrong. God's children are not meant to live in slavish fear of Him. But if you are truly a child of God, there is a kind of fear that preserves us from sin. What David is getting at when he asks that question, how is it you're not afraid to put out your hand against the Lord's anointed... What David's saying is to the Amalekite, listen, you've thought about Saul. You've thought about me. The one person that you haven't factored into this equation is God. 
you should have thought of him. Because you, you, you may have thought that you could get away with this. You may have thought that you could cover this up, that you could have somehow leveraged this sinful act for your immediate good. But as, as Paul would say, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. That which a man sows, he will also reap. So if you're a child of God, you should not live in slavish fear of Him, but there should be a kind of childlike fear, a, a reverence and a respect for God that preserves us from sin, that keeps us from wanting to offend our Holy Father or incur His judgment. In the Bible, the fear of the Lord is synonymous with striving to walk in the ways of the Lord. Psalm 128.1 says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. So walking in the ways of the Lord is the same as fearing the Lord. Now I want you to listen to some of the promises that are given to those who fear the Lord. Psalm 25.14, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. What a, what a strange thing to say. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. If you want to be a friend of God, fear Him. Of course, that doesn't mean that you fear Him in a sense that you keep Him at arm's distance, but it means that you respect Him and that you revere Him, that you don't see Him as someone who you can just walk all over, but as someone who is infinitely holy and who is infinitely wise and who tells you, what is for your good? Psalm 103, verse 13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. God shows fatherly compassion to those who fear Him. Psalm 115, verse 11, You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. God is a help and a shield to those who fear the Lord and trust in Him. And you might say, well, Matt, that's just Old Testament stuff. There's nothing in the New Testament about fearing the Lord. Well, I got bad news for you, or I've got good news for you, depending on how you look at it. Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. In fact, there's a, there's a New Testament example of someone who did the exact same thing the Amalekite did in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, who come and they say, yeah, we sold everything and here's all the money from it. And Peter looks at them and says, you're not lying to us, you're lying to God. The problem is that you did not fear the Lord. You thought that you could get this past us, and you might could have. But you did not factor into the equation the fact that God sees everything. He sees your sin. He sees what you did. And you did not fear Him. And so in Acts 9, we're told that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And as they did so, they had peace. And they were being built up. And they were multiplying. So this is not just for your own soul. This is not just what I'm, what I'm saying here is when I say we should walk in the fear of the Lord, this is not just how you can have a closer relationship with Jesus. Whether or not you are walking in the fear of the Lord affects the health of this church and the witness of this church. Nothing has done more to damage the health and witness of the church, not necessarily this one, but just the church at large. Nothing has done more damage to the health and witness of the church than sinful, hypocritical, mean-spirited, gossiping, slandering, divisive, immoral people who claim the name of Jesus. 
who claim the name of Jesus but may not even be born again. On the other hand, individual members who are walking in the fear of the Lord. That is God's program for the peace of the church and the building up of the church and the multiplication of the church. So we can come up with every outreach program under the sun. And it's, it's fine for us to do that. I'm praying, I've been praying since July that God would use this Financial Peace University class as a way for us to reach people in our community that we would not have had an opportunity to reach otherwise. So it's good for us to try to be creative and to come up with ways that we can do outreach. But there's no substitute for Christians who are walking in the fear of the Lord. That is God's program for the peace of the church and the building up of the church and the multiplication of the church. The church had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, it is important that we get those two conclusions in the right order. Because what you can't do is you can't say, well, because every sin will one day be exposed, then what you need to do is you need to walk in the fear of the Lord. And then when you walk in the fear of the Lord, then you'll be right with God. No, what you need to do first is you need to get right with God and, and, and stop deceiving yourself and stop saying, I have no sin, um, or stop downplaying sin. Few of us would ever say, I don't have any sin, but we downplay it. Uh, it's not so bad. It's just the way I was raised, or you fill in the blank. Sin is sin. If God says it's sin, it's sin. And it won't do for us to say, eh, maybe not. Our, our job when God says sin is sin is to say, you're right. And if you've done that thing, then say, I have sinned. And John says, if you, if you don't do that, then you're walking in darkness and you're deceiving yourself. But if you come into the light, you walk in the light and you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. And then, after you've been forgiven, after you've been cleansed, after you've been made right with God, then... And only then can you walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to God's Word, and God's Word always demands a response. There is never, ever, ever a time when we can hear God's Word and just walk away unchanged or unmoved. Saul thought he could do that. Saul thought, well, Samuel's going to come, and he's going to point out all the things I did, and I'm just going to say, well, I don't see anything. But that didn't end well for Saul. And I don't, so I don't want you to be like that today. I don't want you to, to come in and hear God's Word and say, well, it's not as bad as Matt said it was. I'm not as sinful as he made me out to be or whatever. The best thing we can do is to confess our sins to a God who is faithful and just, to forgive sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And then to ask the Lord to help us as individuals and as a church, to walk in the fear of the Lord for our good, for the good of those around us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and how You chastise us. And Lord, how You uh, will not allow us uh, to go on being deceived and thinking that we are uh, forever going to be the same and that we're forever going to go on and on and on living our lives the way we want until at last... Uh, we enter your presence. 
but Lord, that you command us to confess our sins, to place our faith in Jesus, and to turn from our sin to trust in Him as our Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, um, I pray for those who are gathered here today. Lord, if there's someone here who's never done that, who's never put their trust in you, or Lord, perhaps they feel that they have, but now today they're wondering if they have. God, I pray that you would move in their heart to draw them to yourself. Lord, we do pray for um, all of our outreach efforts that we have here. We pray that you would bless them and uh, cause them to be effective. But Lord, I pray more than anything that you would work in us in our hearts and our lives to help us to walk in the fear of you and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit in such a way that our church would be in peace and would be built up and would be indeed multiplied in this community. So God, we pray that you would preserve us, preserve our witness, and uh, God, that you would move now by your Holy Spirit to draw us to your Son, Jesus, and we pray all this in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together a cappella. Number four.